Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed Podcast. Before we get started with the podcast that Michael and guest host Drew Hamilton did in the field with guest Polly Hessing, we'd like to share a few ways for you to be able to support the podcast that you like to listen to each week and to help us continue to bring this content to you on a weekly basis. There are a couple things going on. Michael, one is, it's kind of an exciting one from our sponsor, Precision Camera, and they've got a GoPro bundle that they've put together. It's a wild and exposed GoPro bundle. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, first of all, you got to call it the wild and exposed GoPro adventure bundle. I do apologize. We are a <laughs> wildlife and adventure podcast. Yeah, so I was talking with those guys down there the other day, and we're like, man, we should come up with a new little promotion something that is kind of cool and something that they can get and something that they could discount. And we came up with the idea of putting together a little GoPro kit. So you can go just about anywhere and buy a GoPro kit, which is just a basic camera. It usually has an extra battery, a couple of sticky mounts and a mount and maybe a little tripod. I think there's different configurations. The one that they've come up with has the camera, rechargeable battery, some adhesive mounts, some mounting buckles but then they threw in a gopro chesty which is a little chest harness that you can mount the gopro to which is cool to to share your adventures with and a couple other little things go to the precision camera website and type in wild and exposed gopro adventure bundle and i'm sure if you just typed in wild and exposed it would come up you'll see that this little kit that they put together this bundle is 479 dollars and 97 cents which is kind of steep when you start looking at buying a camera like that. But with their promotion in working with us, and if you use the coupon code WEGOPRO, all one word, it can be lowercase, uppercase, WEGOPRO, what happens is you get $140 off of the total price. So you go from $479.97 to $339.97 which is actually cheaper than most places I see just the GoPro only you know, when you're out there trying to buy a GoPro. So it's a pretty good deal, and it's something that they've put together just for us. It's only listeners of the podcast or people that have the actual code. And if it's something that you're in the market for, that might be a, a pretty good little add-on to your equipment, uh, what things to throw in your backpack. GoPros, uh, it doesn't take up any space in your kit, and it's a great tool to have in the field. We've filmed soft-shelled turtles, salmon, spawning salmon, uh, spawning brook trout, elk, caribou. Mark's got some crazy caribou footage that uh, I believe he has on the YouTube channel. Uh, moose, I know we got some moose. It's it's just a really diverse tool. You can use it for a lot of different things, get some angles that you wouldn't be able to get otherwise and have less of an impact on the wildlife because you can leave it in a location and let the wildlife come by the camera and not have to worry about being there. So it is a, it is a great tool and I would encourage you all to have at least one. They're actually going to give away a GoPro too. Oh, true. So we should just mention that. And what you have to do is go follow one of the links on our Instagram stories or on an Instagram post. There'll be a link to 
a GoPro giveaway. So if you follow that link, type in your email address, you are entered to win this GoPro. And it'll go on for the next couple of weeks. And you might just win yourself a GoPro and you don't have to go buy the bundle. The other thing, one of the other things that we have is a new t-shirt design. You hear us always say, it depends. People ask us what settings, what camera they should use, um, what location they should go to, what time of year they should go to that location. And honest, the honest answer every time people get back to us is, it depends. Because the, the camera choices, the settings, it, it all depends on the environmental circumstances. The type of camera we use depends on the type of shoot, the species that you might be going after. All those things come into play. And so we created a t-shirt. Michael, you contacted someone that made the design, and the t-shirt says it depends. Yeah, I didn't even know where to start. I just uh, suggested let's use it depends, and then going off of what you just said, is it depending on the type of camera? Is it depending on the type of settings? Is it depending on the species you're shooting? It's always it depends. My buddy just took this concept and came up with a really cool t-shirt design. I'm not even going to tell you what it is. Hopefully you just go to the website and look. If you go to the Wild and Exposed website and click on Shop, it should be one of the first products that pops up, but it'll give you an idea as to what it's going to be. And I think if, if this is successful, if we can sell a few of these shirts, we'll probably continue the theme, but we'll change the design so that every month or two we have a new design that works for It Depends. There you go. Lastly, everybody needs gear. And one of the things that we've got available on the website now, if you go to the top right-hand corner, the gear we use, click on that, and it'll take you into a page that, that lists out all the little things that we use in the kit that not everybody will have. Those links, if you'd like to purchase any of those items, the links are affiliate links, and Wild and Expose will get a few pennies from each one of those items that you purchase. It'll help us to bring you this content. And it's cool little stuff. It's things like a USB charger, wall charger that has several inputs or, or outputs. It'll be batteries. It could be that satellite texting device that we talked about in one of the previous podcasts. It's anything that is just kind of this off-the-wall stuff that is working in our day-to-day -day photographic activities that is not mainstream, but it's just cool enough that it might work for you. And this is just an easy place to go to, to check it out. So you'll either see it on the gear we use link, or if we're, from this point forward, if you go into the show notes on a podcast and we've talked about something that we can include on this list, then we'll have it there and it should just make it an easy way for you to go click on that link and uh, click on the show notes, click on the links part portion of that page down at the bottom and it'll take you right to that product. You're not going to get a deal. You're just going to pay what you would pay anywhere else. But what we're going to get is some sort of little uh, commission off of that sale, which will help us out in the long run. I'm excited for you guys all to hear Polly Hessing. Uh, Polly's a bear researcher, bear biologist, bear behaviorist, and guide in Alaska. 
and I think you'll enjoy the conversation and always appreciate Drew coming on to help us out and bring some of these guests that he knows personally. If you all listen to the Derek Stoneroff podcast and, and found that interesting, I think you'll find this podcast just as interesting. Polly has been here since the 70s, so she's seen tons of change. She's seen some incredible sights, and we tried to get a bunch of those stories out of her just to, to share you know, some of that historical stuff that went on. And she still goes out in the field today. She's retired, but she gets out there when she can, and it's just fun to listen to her talk about the way things used to be, the way they are now, some of the conservation things going on. Just It was full of all kinds of really good. I could have talked to her for, for another three or four hours, but uh, this one is a long one to begin with, so I think it's a couple hours already. But when you're out there going to your next photo shoot or wildlife expedition, it should be something that uh, entertains you along the way. Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Mike Morrow, Ron Hayes, Jason Loftus, and Mark Raycroft. Thanks for tuning in. Today we are joined by Drew Hamilton once again. Hello. And Polly Hussing, which you are a retired wildlife biologist for, it was for the state, right? Or were you federal? I worked for the state, but I also worked for the federal government. I worked on a lot of different projects. So we're super excited because Drew came up with this idea. I don't know. We were on the last bear trip and he's like, you know what? We should do this. And maybe you should explain it better. What was that podcast? Well, we, we had done another podcast where we'd talked, they'd talked to some bear experts and, and I said, well, dang, I know real bear experts. And so we've been going around and trying to find the people that, that I think are, that have the best information and have um, long careers with bears, a lot of field time. And they're the people, when I have questions about bears, they're the people that I ask. And so it's, it's really been fun to go through, and, and it's, it's really just an excuse to hang out with friends and talk about bears. Today we are with Polly, and I was honest with you earlier. I didn't do a ton of research because I tried, and there wasn't a lot of stuff online that I could find. When I type in Polly, I got a picture of Drew. What? Online, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get out. Yeah, Drew, I don't even know where you were at, but it was a picture of you doing something. And then, and of course, it shows tons of bear pictures, but I actually couldn't find that much stuff. And then I thought, you know what? I like just meeting people and just figuring it out as we go. So that's how I was going to approach this interview. But for our audience, can you give us like a, uh, what's a history or a brief, how did you get into doing what you're doing and how did you end up having these jobs and having this awesome career? What I think is an awesome career. You might say, ah, it was good for this, but bad for this. Just give us a brief history of where you're at and how you got to where you're where you are. So, so thanks. It's great. It's great to be here. It's it's great to meet you and also to spend a little time with Drew because I haven't seen him for a while. He's been very busy. I got started in this when I was really little. I was one of those kids that was so into animals. I just wanted to watch them, even as a little kid. Uh, whenever we had a family dog. It was my dog. I was the one that trained it, you know, even when I was six, seven, eight years old. Um, I had a pet rat at one point, which creeped my father out because he kind of grew up in the ghettos of New York. And, you know, it never occurred to me that it would be something that I could do as a living. 
that was just with me for a long time. And I was also one of those kids. I didn't think I was smart enough to go to college right away. And I was also a troubled youth. So I didn't go to college right away. But when I finally got there after a couple of years, I ended up being an English major because I knew I'd have to have a job at some point and that seemed good. And all that came to an end when my brother gave me a copy of Jane Goodall's In the Shadow of Man for Christmas one year. And I read that and I thought, this is a thing. (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know, is not what we would have said then. But um, I got pretty excited about that. And so I immediately changed my uh, my major to biology Um, But I was at the University of New Mexico in the beginning biology class had, you know, a thousand people in it in three sections and two of the sections watched the teacher on video. And it was just, it did not engage me. The one class I took that did was a psychology class because we had um, rats to do experiments on. But I, of course, was worried about cruelty to the rats and how they were kept and all those things. So I know I'm digressing a little bit. That's um, okay. Keep, keep so after two years at the University of Mexi- New Mexico, I thought, well, I guess I'm not smart enough to get a degree because biology is my major and I can only get a C in it. You know, I was just bored. And so I dropped out of school again. And, you know, my mother and I were not on the greatest of terms. And um, I think she was pretty sick of all her kids at some point in her life. And she used to stay up late to do the ironing, quote, unquote, but actually I think it was to avoid us and watch TV. And uh, one night she was watching TV on late and there was some special program on that was a movie about a new school that had opened in Washington called the Evergreen State College. And she thought I would be interested in it. And so I actually sent off an application, thought it sounded interesting. And then the next summer, and this was, I was still at the University of New Mexico. You know, I didn't really have a skill to get a job. I had no idea how to go out and get a job. I'd actually, the one paying job I'd had has been as a telephone operator before I went to college. And I uh, ended up getting a job as an outward bound instructor in Texas. And so I did that uh, for those two summers I was in New Mexico. And I met this woman who was a student at Evergreen. And I just remember her saying, you are going to love it. And I didn't really understand what it was. But, you know, off I went after a year off of college, off I went to the Northwest. And I'd never been away from home. I'd certainly never been in the rainforest. I was from New Mexico. And so I just thought, I I don't know if I can even stay here. But, you know, I was in Evergreen Works where you don't just take individual classes. You usually sign up for a program that involves um, classes coordinated with with each other, and you usually have projects that your group does. But after a year in the group I was in, I felt once again that it wasn't quite me. And I went to my main professor, who I was terrified of, and said, you know, I think I'm going to go back to New Mexico because I can't take the rain. And I'm don't feel like I'm doing very well in our program. And he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, really, I just want to watch animals. And he said, okay, we're going to sign you up for an individual contract. So I spent my last year as an undergraduate um, just reading lists of books. I met with my instructor uh, once a month, and he'd quiz me on what I'd been reading. And I, my senior project was to uh, put up, I think it was 36 Um, birdhouses for chickadees and do a flocking and nesting behavior study of the chestnut-backed chickadee. And 
I just learned a lot about animal behavior. So anyway, that's how I started. So how do you get how do you get from chickadees to bear? To, well, you know, so Polly's got a career that spans a lot of different species, and I know her from McNeil River. Like I know I know the bear portion of of Polly's life, but. I mean, you went from chickadees to walruses first, no. or bears, or what's no. the order of even, things there? Even better. So when when I was at Evergreen, one of the um, projects that we were working on was one of the last DDT sprays in eastern Washington for the tussock moth. And so one thing that the students did was we collected caterpillars and then squeezed them to see how many of them had been affected by Bacillus thuringiensis which is a natural biocontrol, which now you can go to the store and buy, but it was pretty new then. So this was all about, well, if enough of these already have this natural control, why are we spraying DDT on them? So I always tell people, well, I've, you know, looked at things microscopically because I've also, one of my favorite classes was parasitology. (laughs) (laughs) And also I've worked with bowhead whales. So it's sort of like, from A to Z. It's kind of neat. And then everything in between. But really, I think, you know, what stole my heart were bears and walruses because I've spent the most time just watching. Well, and in a lot of ways, you've worked with people, too. <laughs> when you, <end> up, <laughs> you know, the, the craziest species of them all. Yeah, that we, we call the hairless biped, right? And um, I mean, the, the great thing is, so this is a, a secret, which I guess I'm going to out a little bit, but uh, wildlife management, you know, Wildlife managers, wink, wink. It's sort of like it's all people management. But, you know, we call it wildlife management because people don't like to be managed so much. <laughs> don't tell me what to do. <laughs> That's been our running running theme. Here. Right. So, the, so the real question is, you know, when I, when I graduated from Evergreen, I was so shy. You wouldn't believe it, really, because I can never I stop talking it. now. But I was so shy. I wasn't even sure I'd graduated because Evergreen was that kind of place. But <laughs> I had, a year after I graduated, I, a group of my good friends got together, and one of whom was grew up here and actually grew up in this neighborhood, Drew, where you grew up. I was, bo- I, I was born right over there. That's amazing. Wait, no, over there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and my friend, you know, her first house, her family's first house was two blocks away. So, but anyway, we, this group came up to uh, do a skiing and climbing trip, and I came up with a proverbial 50 bucks in my pocket, and I didn't really have enough money to go back south. And so I wanted to work. My friend who was from here said, you know, you, are, you can probably get a job at Fish and Game. And so Fish and Game hires a lot of people in the summer. To, to work on fisheries mostly. My friend called a friend of hers at Fishing Game, another woman, who asked around and called me and said, so-and-so is still hiring. And so I, I went in and met this guy, and I just remember him being extremely apologetic because I have one position left, and it's in the office in King Salmon. And I remember saying, well, that's really good because I am really afraid of bears and mosquitoes. <laughs> And and I remember also he looked through my resume and he said, you know, you have so much more field experience than most Ph.D. students that I get, you know, and that's all down to Evergreen, really. Well, and I think what does set you apart in, in a lot of these things and the, over the course of your career was your varied field time. I yeah. mean, you, you, McNeil River, Round Island, all these all these places. And I think one of the first times I, I met you. Uh, we played dictionary, 
and that I said, so "Wow, she's she's so good at these field camp games. She must have spent a lot of time, <laughs> a lot of time in field camps." Before you go too far, just you, we were ref- referencing here, and I don't think we oh, basically said we're in Anchorage, Alaska, right now. So if you came up with fifty bucks to Anchorage, Alaska, and didn't have enough money to go home and that started the whole yeah and I got I got a summer job everybody who knows me knows that as long as I've been here I've talked about going back to New Mexico and I've never left and I am I know I'm not the only Alaskan who does that but yeah but you know the interesting thing and this is something Larry Amelie does not remember but that first sim- summer in King Salmon was amazing because first of all the Air Force used to have a base out there I was the only woman that got off the plane that day and I've never been in a situation like that. So that was a little unnerving. And then, um, you know, people stayed awake all night. And there'd be kids driving through King Salmon and, you know, two in the morning on four wheelers. And <laughs> I just, you know, it was kind of amazing. And then the area biologist at that time was Jim Farrow, who was great. And he's the guy that first hired Larry to go to McNeil and you know, put some kind of oversight over sort of photographers running all over the place, chasing bears around. And so I think that was Larry's first summer out there. And I actually met him, but he has no memory of this. <laughs> and he's told me that. And I guess that means he's more memorable than <laughs> than I am. But I met him over at, at Pharaoh's one night because um, Jim had told me, he said he would show me how to uh, taxiderm a ptarmigan. Because I was really interested in doing that. But actually, he ended up doing it. He was He's really, really good at that. But the other person I met the same evening was Jay Hammond before he became <laughs> governor. And I didn't know who Jay Hammond was. He just seemed like, you know, these Jim Farrow and Jay Hammond were very cool guys. I mean, it was really. And then I just remember Larry was sort of running in and out, getting ready. And, you know, he had some skulls. This is what I remember. He actually was showing me some skulls because he used to collect a lot of skulls. Anyway, so that's. But I was really afraid of bears then. I mean, really. And mosquitoes. I mean, I I can't stand mosquitoes Well, we don't have those here, so you'll be fine. (laughs) Uh, Well, and so you said you're the only woman who got off the plane. Like, how many women were working in fish and game field camps at the time this was also so this was 1976 i think um this was the first summer that uh women were working out in the fish camps like on counting towers and things like that it's the first time they were thought worthy of that and they might have been working on other projects but i think that was the first year that it was officially okay so what was so you're you're going out you're in King Salmon which is yeah. Bear Central yeah you know out that way, and um, so going in you said you were scared of but what were the things why were you scared of bears going in? So this is going to be full of digressions and you can just kind of hack them out of here. But when I was a kid, I grew up in Washington D.C. until I was twelve, and then we moved to New Mexico. But uh, my dad was already out there working, and my mom was from Montreal, so we drove from Washington, D.C. to Montreal, and then we drove across the country, and of course we drove through Yellowstone at that time. And so I'd never seen bears up till then. So anyway, we camped at Yellowstone, and so I remember a couple things. I just knew generally bears were dangerous because I read a lot of books as a kid. My mom was sort of a toughie, 
And so I just remember there was a black bear grazing in this field, the flowers off to one side of the road. And um, all these cars were pulled over watching it. And my mom rolled the window down and I had a meltdown. I mean, I was just, roll up the window. <laughs> I don't know what I thought would happen. The bear wasn't even close to the car. It wasn't even paying attention. And then the other thing that happened at Yellowstone that probably made more of an impression was we were camped somewhere near Old Faithful in, you know, a big park service camping ground. And it was night. And people were shouting, there's a bear, there's a bear. And in the camp next to ours, I could see this bear was at their picnic table and they the cooler, their cooler was out and this bear had picked up this cooler and like flipped it over and all this food was falling on this bear and people were running out of the campground. And so of course, you know, I'm a good panicker. So I ran out with them and I, I mean, people just ran into the bathrooms. The bathrooms were just packed. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't know what happened after that, but I had this really vivid memory of, you know, seeing this bear. And it was a Yellowstone bear, so it wasn't anything like an Alaska bear. You know, it was way smaller in those things. But And it's probably a black bear. Well, and no, I, that was a brown bear. It was a brown yeah. bear. Yeah. And that was also, uh, it was right around the time, it was before, I think, they'd closed the dump at Yellowstone um, but it was right around the time when they were starting to close it. And so it was, they hadn't really prepared for if they closed the dump, what those bears were going to be doing. So that's, and that's kind of a historical case study on how not to, uh, <laughs> how not yeah. to manage bears. <laughs> like that one keeps coming up even decades later, like, oh, maybe we shouldn't have done it that way. But, um, well, so you're afraid of bears. Yeah. You go to King Salmon. We're sitting here today. You're no longer afraid of bears, right? Let's clear that up. I'm not. Okay, how did you get over that? Like, what, what was there a well, moment or an epiphany? I mean, I was afraid of bears, but my first summer up here, I went to Katmai alone in August, and I had no idea how many bears there were. And so I just, there were these two guys there from Anchorage, and I actually asked them if I could just stay in their tent with them. I was terrified because I realized, oh my God, the bears are walking around, and I went on a solo back, you know, it's, this is the story of my life. I am really afraid of doing stuff, and then I end up doing it and terrifying myself. So <laughs> I went on a backpack trip, so I went up, I think it's called Wolf Creek, and then over a pass, and I was going to come down in the Valley of 10,000 Smokes, and I was going to camp up in that pass because the weather was good, and I got up to the pass, and there was this bare footprint <laughs> right in the middle of that. So like, oh, no, I can't stay here. And, you know, now I would look at that and say, well, this probably happened days ago, but kind of walked all the way out, had a schedule, ended up back in the campground, asked these guys if I could, they probably thought I was hitting on them, which whoever, if you're listening to this, thank you so much because I was so afraid. <laughs> um, and then I came back to Anchorage and finished up my job here and then I was done. And so I went on a solo backpack trip in the Chukach and this is when the Glen Alps parking lot was just this little gravel patch, <laughs> right? And so... Um, my friend dropped me off there, and then my plan was, you know, I looked at a map, and it looked like there was some kind of trail up Bird Creek, which was BS, but I didn't know it. <laughs> and so I just kind of went cross-country and uh, to come out there, and it was fine until I started, you know, over the last pass, and then kind of I realized there was no trail, and so I was side-hilling all along Bird Creek, and, you know, it was fall, the grass was over my head, there was bear poop everywhere, and I was just 
kind of yelling the whole way down, bear, hey, bear, because I knew about that, about making noise. Um, and th- I never saw a bear. Because you were yelling at him the whole yeah. time. Yeah. And then the uh, the other thing, like, you know, I kept doing this kind of stuff. And, and then after that, I went up to Denali and I did, my plan was to do like a three-week solo backpack, start way west in the park and end up at headquarters just as everything shut down. And it didn't quite work out that way. But what they told you at that time, like that's when they were still telling people, if you have a problem with a bear and it's chasing you, throw your pack down. <laughs> they were still telling people that, you know, that then. Um, but they did say, you know, if you see a bear, let it know that you're there. And so the first time I ran into a bear that I thought I should alert, I was up on a ridge and there was a female and a cub down below me looking, trying to dig up ground squirrels. And so I have, was traveling with my ice axe. And so I just banged it on a rock and said, hey, bear, <laughs> the female just looked up at me, just started running at a dead run up the hill. <laughs> Towards you. Towards me. (laughs) And it's sort of like, oh, no, what do I do now? And, you know, luckily she she stopped about two-thirds of the way up. But I thought, oh, well, next time I'm not telling you, you know. (laughs) 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 So so anyway, okay, so to get to your question, and you can just edit all that stuff out. Um, So in the spring, for several years, I'd actually gone up to Barrow and worked on the Bowhead census. So that was a two-month gig. And then um, at that time, Fishing Game was looking into a possible dam on the Susitna River. And so there was this huge project, um, Susitna Hydro Project. And so I uh, had a commercial fisheries job on that. And my job was <laughs> to drift net on the Susitna River, <laughs> you know, and I was hired for that job because I had um, spent a summer and a half rowing boats on the Ninana River. So I could actually read water really well, but I hadn't really done a lot of motorboat stuff. Um, so anyway, I I had um, that job for a couple summers. And then um, Warren Ballard, who was a wildlife biologist out of Glen Allen, was uh, looking for someone to work on his project, which was mammals. And I had, you know, this whole time I really wanted to work with mammals, but there's there's never been as many, you know, wildlife jobs as fish jobs. And so um, at that time, I had pick up winter work, and I was doing something for his wife at the time in the office. And so she thought I was a good worker, which is great. And Larry told me this later, because Larry was actually in Glen Allen working for Warren at this time. Larry said, oh, you know, he just, he wanted someone to file papers, and he thought you'd be good at it because you're a woman. (laughs) So I don't know if that's true or not. But you didn't end up filing papers. You well, I did a little tiny little bit, bit. But um, yeah, so anyway, I I went to Glen Allen and I spent pretty much a year there and then my funding got cut and that was that was it. But Larry was there and he still didn't remember that he'd met me before, but that was <laughs> fine. Finally, about the fear thing. So uh, Larry gave a slideshow one night when people used to do slideshows and not PowerPoints and, you know, to the people in our office. So we had, I think it was a potluck dinner. And I was just fascinated. I had no idea about McNeil. Like, I had no idea it looked the way it looked because when I first talked to Jim Farrow about it now years ago, you know, I was kind of envisioning some place, a river with these really big trees. I was thinking of something more like Katmai. Um, and, you know, Larry showed these pictures and showed how it worked. I thought, I, I got to go there. And Kachemak Air had just started offering seat fares, so you didn't have to charter an otter because that just... One thing about my wonderful jobs is 
none of them paid great. So <laughs> I never had tons of money. So anyway, I I went out that summer because I don't I think that was the summer my funding was cut. And so I th I like I really have to look at my journals, but I think it's possible that same summer I went and ran the Tatsanchini River down in the Yukon and then went out to McNeil and and actually stayed a little extra to help out because it was just Larry trying to run things and then his boss would come spend time with him and then his boss's assistant would come spend time with him to have a second person there. But I just I just remember the first day at McNeil kind of going out with the group to look at bears and you know, I used to have really, really good distance vision and I just remember being right behind Larry and sort of, there's a bear out there. <laughs> <laughs> over there and it's we don't worry about those you know it was probably half a mile away <laughs> so it it has occurred to me that everybody that's worked at mcneil it's totally on the job training because there's no way you could you can read about this but you have to see it to believe it i think you know i spend a lot of time with bears and i always I remember thinking back to our time together at McNeil River, and there was just one situation where we were down, uh, it was probably August, must have been August because we were in the lagoon, and there was a female with two kois, two cubs of the year, and she was, we called her Lax. You remember Lax? Because mm -hmm. she'd wander off and leave yeah. the cubs right there with you, and then you're dealing with these cubs, and you were the guy that day, and I was just there doing whatever I do, and uh and these cubs were super curious and, and coming up. And, you know, you never want to freak the cubs out and sending them back to mom. And I just remember watching you. <laughs> I was watching. I was watching and learning, Polly. And just how you, just through subtle movements, you got the cubs. The cubs are taking in the whole group. And suddenly you just started, like, moving your hand a little bit. And the cubs started looking at you. So suddenly they're like wide viewed and then they focus on you and then I don't even know what you did but you just sent did a little something and they just wandered wandered back to mom it was just like the perfect textbook way to handle that situation and so I, I still think about that when I'm in the field huh. I always like what would Polly do well, well that, that could be dangerous Drew <laughs> but I, I think for especially if the female isn't right there I think if you do something to make them uncomfortable enough like just barely uncomfortable enough so they move so not so much that they start crying and telling on you but <laughs> but you know just so that they don't really quite trust you anymore and then they'll go back to mom and then y you behave too and so they get they get okay with it so it was just yeah you just gradually increased the yeah. the little things until it until it reached that threshold that sent them okay yeah we don't need to investigate these and i just thought that was so cool and just masterful because nobody in the group knew you were doing it no that's like the was, other thing. you were sitting in the back and you just took control of that those two bear cubs and sent them sent them back to mom now how'd you learn all that partly from being around larry but it is just really hard to describe but you know the last few times i've been out there i actually have spent time paying attention to what the guides are doing because I think what happens at this point, if you've been doing it for a while, it's so intrinsic to who you are. It, and it's just a gestalt thing of the whole, 
you know, you're looking at a bear to see what the bear's disposition is at the same time to see what the bear is worried about. Like, is it, you know, it's always a question, is the, is the bear more worried about you or other bears or something else? What are the people doing? Because if you have a person who's, you know, sort of a, a wild card, you, you really have to pay attention to that. And I mean, things change over time with what the bears are doing. Because when I first started going out there, I mean, it was really interesting because you didn't, you rarely saw adult males on our side of the river. They just didn't come. And, you know, I always tell this story about Earl, who was, Derek always said that like Earl's genes were, you know, like 90% of the genes. We should clarify that Earl's a bear. Earl's, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, thank you, Drew. Um, Earl's a bear and, you know, People did not find him very attractive, but uh, female bears seemed to put up with him for whatever reason. But, you know, he didn't used to come to our side of the river. And one day this younger bear, like a sub-adult on the far side of the river, got a fish. He might have even stolen the fish from a different bear, but he he had it and he was so excited to have it. You know, he, he ran off with it away from the other bears and started to eat it. But Earl had honed in on that fish and this was all on the other side of the river and started chasing this young bear. And the bear ran all the way down the far side of the river, swam across with his fish, and then came running up our side. And Earl followed him the whole way up. And he'd never been on our side of the river before. And so I thought, well, this will be interesting. And then this young bear actually ran right behind the pad with his fish and Earl went by, and I saw him sort of looking at us out of the corner of his eye as he followed this young bear. And the young bear, you know, the little knoll that's right upstream, that young bear went right to the top, turned around and looked at us, and he's got this fish in his mouth. And and then he went over the top. And Earl got part way up, and then he turned around and looked at us, and I thought, oh, he's going to charge. And he did. And, you know, Larry has never believed me about this, but he just came at this run, and so... You know, I picked up my gun, and and meanwhile, there was something else, and I can't remember what, but I think female and cubs in front of the pad. So everybody's looking there. Nobody's looking at Earl except <laughs> me, and he, he came running down. He stopped, say, from me to you, like very close, and he just sort of stopped there, and I just did what I'd been told to do. I just chambered around and just yelled, hey, really loud, I thought even though the falls are louder. And he just stood there like for a microsecond and then he just whirled and he ran away. And somebody who was next to me on the pad saw me putting the gun down and no one else knew that I'd even picked up the gun. Um, And so, you know, if I think about what happened there, I knew he wasn't a nearside bear I knew he saw us when he went by and he was concerned. And then when he turned around, I thought, oh, he's more worried about us than he's interested in getting the fish. So that kind of all lined up. And it all turned out okay. So did Earl turn into a nearside bear? Yeah. So, I mean, that's the amazing thing to me because, you know, even then he must have been at least, he was an adult. He was probably 10 or something, I guess. And, and you know, he just started coming more and more on the near side, and he became more and more habituated to us. So, you know, pretty much later on, he's, 
he's bringing his dates over for us to watch while they copulate, you know? So <laughs> anyway. So it turned out that was an actual benign interaction, <laughs> which is the, uh, it might've got you fired up, but yeah, benign interaction to him. And so, yeah, I mean, cause I think back, you know, in the eighties and Barry Gilbert said, you know, large males don't habituate like that was. And then you, you think about situations like that, where you watched Earl habituate over the course of what, what kind of timeline, like a, a summer or a, I can't. An I can't afternoon. remember details. Yeah, an <laughs> afternoon. No, I. I mean, I think he was just coming over more and more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, bit by bit. So it's yeah. You can't. You can't really tell, but I think you know the big thing McNeil has over all these other places, and it's always had is. The people are really controlled at this point, and so you know if you're going to habituate an animal, you really need to do things as consistently as possible. You know, I've always worried over time about the nights when it's so good you don't want to leave the falls, but I've always felt like, well, that really is excluding some bears who will only come there when there aren't people. We d- we talked about this one time, so correct me when when it gets wrong. But so you've been you've worked at McNeil, not all at once, but. In four different decades, right? Because the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, and then, yeah. What, what year is it now? I, I can't I lose track. Okay, I lose track. I, how do you think I feel? <laughs> <laughs> but so, you know, the bear viewing industry has changed. McNeil's changed. Like, over the course of those stints, what, what are, the, are, are things improving? Are there things, like, what what's different? In each of those. Those are really good questions. And so I know you have opinions on it, too, because, you know, you've spent time, you've been in the quote unquote industry for a while now as well. But, you know, one thing that's really changed when I first started going out there was mostly pro photographers or people that had just kind of heard about the place. And there wasn't really the interest. So that was in the 80s. And then there just started being more and more um, information about Bears and McNeil kind of out in the world and people wanted to go there. Um, and so I think, you know, then the visitor, you you get more an adventurer type of person, but it's not necessarily for an adventurer type of person because not everybody wants to sit still for six or eight hours because that's what it you It comes back to doing. the people management. Yeah, it comes back <laughs> to the people management. And, and, you know, I have to give kudos to the staff because over time, I mean, for the most part, the staff, I think, is exceptional because they make it look really easy. But it's it's not always easy to handle the desires of 10 very different people. But, it you know, it seems to work for the most part. How did the pad develop? I mean, how did that whole concept? I mean, I, th- I know there's books out there that you can read. In fact, Larry's book is, I think he talks about it in that book. But... Are you aware of that? Do you know how that all... Because it sounds like you got there, the pad was already in place. Yeah. When, when you got there. Yeah. And so I think, um, I don't know the details for sure, but before that summer when Larry went out, you know, photographers were mostly staying in the cave. Have you been out there? So before Michael? before okay. we get into your story here, yeah. what is the pad? Yeah, exactly. So when you go what to McNeil River and you're escorted to the falls, McNeil Falls, world famous, Escorted from where? Escorted from camp, which is 1.9 miles uh, from the falls. And Larry would be able to give you the exact number of steps. (laughs) This is true. (laughs) It's true. Um, And you get there and you stop at the top, the overlook, which is still at the top of the hill. And you look down, you see the pads, you see the river, you see the center rock. And you stop there for a little bit. 
to let the bears get used to you, and then you walk down, and then there are two pads actually. There's an upper pad, and it's just gravel. It's just, not like it, it's not like you guys made a pad. No, it's it's, it's just, just gravel. A, a cordoned <laughs> off area that you call the pad. Well, it's not even cordoned off. Like there's a there's a the grass edge, and I would always tell people. But it's you been have improved. It it's been muchly it? improved. Oh well, yeah, gravel technology has improved. Well, in the grass. That grass, oh, the grass didn't used to be there. Well, so the grass goes right up to the edge, and that was always, for me, the line. Like, no bears on the, mostly no bears on the gravel. And then anything from the grass out was their domain. They can do whatever they want. And so there's an upper pad, and then there's a lower pad, which is down. It's There's a little cave underneath um, that is perhaps more desirable if it's, windy and rainy and things like that so it's an upper and a lower pad but they're, they're nothing glamorous they're just it's just gravel gravel pads that can accommodate like 12 12 people and how many people are allowed out there now it's 10 people per day yeah per day and then plus the guy one or one or two fish and game staff so that's where i come, so come like up 12, with that enough room number. for 12 yep. people comfortable on the pad. Yeah. And for, for photographers, you could set up a tripod in the old days now, but nobody uses a tripod now. But there's plenty of room to yeah. to set up and just spend the day getting your shot. Originally, they, they must have been, you know, they really wanted a place so people weren't going all over the place, right? And so then they needed a place where they would be visible to the bears and that the bears would be visible to the viewers. And, and that pad really fulfills most of that, you know, unlike any other place on the river, because the, the other places, you know, one of the things about that pad is the access to it as you come over the top. It used to be different. And so one of the last things you do before you get to the pad is you'd be <laughs> in a bunch of alders, which <laughs> sometimes there would be bears in those alders. And so over time, we actually have moved the trail. So it's mostly out in the open. So bears know where you are and then the pad itself i think was just sort of this natural there was some gravel on top of that cave because it's a rocky thing anyway but right behind it is kind of swampy and so over time larry actually and i helped him do this one year we collected grass seed planted it all around the pad to grow up the grass so that you'd have a bit of a windbreak because the wind can really get hauling and the current manager doesn't like the grass that tall and it also gets in the way of people's pictures so they keep it shorter now but we used to keep it tall enough so that if we needed a nap we could kind of <laughs> get behind the grass and be protected but yeah field and naps at mcneil or falls are fun yeah and then at the you know at the end of the summer typically you you doctor it up and at the beginning too you'd go down to the river and haul up some gravel to kind of replace what had been removed because bears you know, that's one of the things, the rules at McNeil, when Larry first started, I believe that Jim Farrow told him, you know, never yield the path to a bear. And this was just sort of based on what people were doing with bears at the time. And I think, you know, one of them is, do you want to get a bear out of camp? You know, pepper it with buckshot, which I don't think Larry did ever. We will yield the trail to bears if it seems necessary, but bears are not allowed where the group is. They're not allowed in camp. And they're not allowed on the pad when we're there. But if we're not there, they can be there. And they really like it because it's a great, you know, people always say bears can't see very well, but they can see at least as well as we can. And it's a really nice overlook. So they can look up and down the river and see who's there. 
it's it's it is the best view. Like yeah, it, it, it was, is, and it is. It's amazing. As soon as the group leaves, you, before you're out of sight, it usually gets reclaimed. You know, they'll they'll be back on there, and then some days you'll go down, and you know there'll be fish carcasses <laughs> and bear shit everywhere. Like it, it's it's it goes right back to. Uh, to what it, what it was meant to be once once the people are gone. So were you ever, did you ever see Rusty? Was no. he around? So there was a, a bear, Rusty, who pretty much aged out of the system, as they say. But um, towards the end of his time there, uh, he would stay on the pad. And so we'd get there in the morning. And, I mean, it, he was at his prime. He was one of these bears. He wasn't really tall. But he would look kind of like a tick with these little tiny legs because he'd be so <laughs> fat. And he'd be just lying on his side in the middle of the pad asleep. And we'd have to, you know, we'd give him some time and then clap. And he'd raise his head and look at us and then lie back down. And we actually thought maybe he was get, getting a little mixed up kind of later on in his years. But, you know, there were a couple times when we... We moved him just by just starting down the trail really slowly, and then, you know, he'd feel pressured enough to get up. And um, there are a couple times really late in his life when he would, you know, do a cowboy walk. Like, he'd do a display walk to us where he'd, you know, walk with his hind legs really wide and be peeing as he went just to show his total disgust with <laughs> us. So, anyway, that was interesting. Well, and speaking of old bears, and I don't know if you've gotten this new – so Ears is back – and he is officially 30 <laughs> this year. He he had his, wow. you know, because they pulled a tooth in the right. study. And so he's, he's their ears is back and he's 30. And Ted Like is still there. Wow. So, I mean, these are bears that are, you know, well beyond kind of the, the average lifespan, uh, I would think. And so it's just cool that there are places where no bear bears can, can do that and just well, be a bear. Well, um, so you just reminded me that was something when I was talking before about, you know, how Earl became a nearside bear. And, you know, now there are adult males that they're on both sides. There are a lot of them habituate to people. And so certainly some of that, like it was for the original Ted, you know, because Teddy would bring him and park him, you know, right next to the pad and then go Again, fishing. Again, these are bears. These are bears. Thank <laughs> you very much. Um, and so I often thought, especially for Ted, that I don't know if he really knew what species he was because sometimes <laughs> he didn't seem to fit so well with the other Bears, but those bears that, you know, quote unquote, grew up in that McNeil system, they never would have thought anything different about which side of the river they fished on or anything. So grew up in the. So, yeah, they're Teddy brought Ted. Yeah. And then so it was nothing unusual. Yeah. So the, the habituation process kind of sped up, maybe. Yeah. Like through. So they didn't have to go through all those repeated benign interactions. Right. What yeah. do you think about the habituation? Uh, how important is it to have places like that where bears can be bears and people can coexist with absolutely no no problems for either? Well, well, yeah, I think there actually are some problems like, you know, because I think every so often bears get displaced at McNeil because of people stuff, but it's it's kept pretty low. I think about this a lot. I think it's you know, I call it the great divorce. I think people are so estranged from the wilderness. So I think it's really important to have a place like McNeil, even though the way, I mean, this is one of my biggest concerns is the way the world is going. We're not going to have those big tracts of habitat to support bears at some point, I think. But 
I think it's important for us to at least know what we've lost. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to remember now the figures of, you know, brown bears, the estimated population of brown bears in the lower 48, you know, in the 1800s was, I don't know, 40 or 50,000 or something like that. And, you know, they're pretty much gone. So, I mean, we can, we can do that if we choose to. So I, th I think it's really important because I also think, especially McNeil, um, people have the opportunity there to learn, this is a bear, this is what you do, this is what you don't do. So that's one thing, but also to get a sense of the whole ecosystem that a bear lives in, because it doesn't just eat fish. That grass in the spring is really important to them. It's very high in protein when it first starts growing. And also, you know, bears dig up roots, and they're really important Bears are ecologically because, you know, they're bringing nutrients from way down up to the surface. And then when they poop out their fish, they're adding nitrogen to the land, you know, instead of having it all restricted to the water. So, I mean, they're, they're, they're really a, an important species. But one thing I've also always worried about with McNeil is that people might get the wrong idea that, you know, just because the guide of the group is sort of seeing where a bear is and, you know, how it might be somewhat approached. A person might not realize all those nuances and might think, well, this is okay for me to do when I'm, and next time I see a bear, I'm going to walk up and take a picture. If they're by themselves and yeah. not with a guy. Yeah, and so they don't, they don't understand what safety the group confers on them necessarily. And uh, I remember a, um, a long time ago, this guy who kept, you know, I was asking the group, we can do this or this or this and this one very intense person said, I don't care what we do. I just want you to get me as close as possible to a bear. <laughs> and, and I said, well, what do you, why? And he said, because I just think it's really important. And I said, well, what do you think a bear has to gain from that? And he said, because I think we can communicate with each other. And I, I think, well, you know, we are communicating right now and we're communicating that we're going to leave them alone. <laughs> I don't think he got it. So that's, kind of a worry but yeah I, I think those places are important and what do you think about it seems like mcneil is one of the first places where habituation starts right yeah but now it seems to you know you've got places like hollow and you got places like like clark and you got places where right you can that habituation exists there as well in my mind it's better for the bears yeah. ultimately well yes and no because as you know bears are really wide-ranging animals and so if you know if they go somewhere where they're hunted you know th there's always been this discussion well their behavior changes when they're not in a protected area but the the other thing is you know i i know that most of the other places people aren't as restricted as they are at mcneil so even if you're a person who goes out and is guided from a camp if you're not with a guide, somebody nearby may be doing something different with those bears. And, you know, all that's now happening close to McNeil. So I think these bears are learning things that they didn't used to learn necessarily. You know, like it, it used to be pretty much you could feel like, well, these bears are not food conditioned because the nearest settlement is so many miles away and hardly any bears go there and get shot. Um, but, but now there's a lot of visitation and I think the park service tries to keep up with it, but it's just it's just hard the way it is. But I, I still think it's important for it to be happening. Yeah. I, I want to go back to a phrase you mentioned, uh, large tracts of land. 
yeah. and, and habitat preservation. And we are we've done we've done several podcasts on the Pebble Mine and, and things like that. And a lot of listeners have been very engaged in the Pebble fight. And we put together um, uh, you know a list of talking points for people when they're contacting the EPA or they were con- or, uh, excuse me the Army Corps of Engineers they were contacting their their senators and people like that and we had the, the list of bare talking points and I just wanted to point out that that was Polly's list ah. so <laughs> that was so your list that you made up you know played an important role in, in engaging the general public to be able to come in and engage in the in the pebble process and so just wanted to say thank well, thanks you. Drew thank you for that Polly well thanks for encouraging me to kind of get on the horse. It took a couple phone calls. It, I know. It's, it's, <laughs> well, as you can see, I have a lot of remodeling. <laughs> but no, it's worthy, and it's actually great to use my brain. But, you know, those sorts of projects are going on all over the place, and it's, you know, most of us just kind of want to live our lives as we see fit and not want to have to hassle with those sorts of things, but they're ongoing. And I thank you, Drew, for being so energetic about sort of jumping on them because, you know, okay, Pebble, I don't know, Pebble is, I will just say quiescent right now. I won't say that it's gone away, but you know, we have the Ambler Road and I think any project like that is, impacts the wildlife, whether it's a bear or, you know, mice, it's changes thing so there were so many things happening at once so you have pebble that wanted to put this road right by mcneil river and then you had oil and gas development in in on the south side of chinitna bay and then you've got the johnson tract mine and so suddenly you're going from you know what if all three of those things went in or what if one of one or two of them went in like suddenly this wilderness that was the you know the dominion of bears and suddenly it's not I mean, just like that, because we didn't look at, at the impacts to all these, these cumulative impacts. And it's, you know, it would have been, I mean, Pebble Mine is more than a paper cut, but it comes back to that death by 10,000 paper cuts, which is usually how wilderness gets diminished to the point that it's no longer wild. And so, you know, and bears need that. And so I just, sorry, I clued in on that, that one little phrase you said, and I just wanted to highlight how, that, how important that is for, uh, for the bears of not just McNeil River, uh, but all of the Alaska, well, all the bears, all the bears in the world, they just need space. You know, we just take space for granted in our country, really. But if you look at how much has gotten, you know, every one of us can go back to the place where we grew up and see how changed it is. And that's just a microcosm of, you know, the whole world. And I'm not sure if you've ever, if you saw... Um, a few years ago, the National Geographic had an article about ma- mining and planned mining in the Yukon, which is also bare territory, brown, black, and polar. And it just showed all the tracts of land in the province that sort of mining, it was open to mining, and it was pretty much the whole thing. So, you know, it's sort of nothing's really off the books, it seems like. Yeah. So, so it is something we just, we throw that there, we got the, those of us that cherish places like this we just have to remain vigilant and we won't win them all but well i think that's the thing you have to be vigilant right and there i just feel like there has to be places that are kept sacred we all use devices we're recording our microphones that use all this stuff we're doing all these things i was listening to a dirtbag diaries podcast on the way back yesterday and they were talking about a copper mine down in arizona outside arizona that's just going to totally decimate this sacred area of 
of ground but the flip side is is if you want to keep buying an iphone or if you want to keep using microphones i mean the stuff's got to come from somewhere right that being said there's no easy answer to anything yeah but we have to try to save some of these areas and sequester like activity that is detriment to the to the natural world or to the I natural these, these microphones are recycled Air? plastic right probably so, so. <laughs> probably so i, I thought mine were made out of tomato cans <laughs> <laughs> you know, we just sit here with soup cans <laughs> yeah. on our heads actually michael i think that's a really good point because i think a lot of us just feel like it's it's so big why deal with it but i think if each person sort of looks at okay i don't have to have the newest and latest etc live like that but then also just pay attention to the the big plan because you know in fact our country does have a lot of environmental laws sometimes it seems like it's never enough but they're there um and you know it's sometimes it's a matter of the public holding companies feet to the fire and i think it's the habitat division at fishing game apparently used to have a saying that was hold them to what they want for the permitters to hold the people getting the permits to what they were asking for instead of like giving them anything, you know, just start, okay, you want this? This is what we'll permit you for now, you know, but if you want more, you're going to have to reapply and we'll reconsider it. So yeah, we all, we all have to keep our eyes open, I guess. Yeah. I mean, cause it's, I don't know, as long as we keep the planet keeps having more people. I mean, I don't know where it ends. Right? Nobody's but allowed to talk about that for some reason. I know. Don't don't get me started. I know. But. I know. Well, so I kind of want to do a, a hard pivot here because Aww. Polly. Well, Polly and I have had. <laughs> we've spent Aww. so much time in field camps, and we, we. That's what Polly and I do in field camps: is we sit around and talk. Fix the world. We fix the world. I mean, we don't tell anybody, but right. it's fixed. Yeah, we've got a plan. Good. And uh, <laughs> but one of the things that we we one of the topics that we tend to gravitate towards are misconceptions about bears. And one of the things that we've always had um, uh, conversations about is you know you always you always hear about infanticide in bears. You know, oh, the big males kill cubs so that they can mate with the moms and you know, all this stuff. And we've had some really interesting discussions. I remember an argument we got in with a, a National Geographic producer. You remember that? No. You were there. Well, I'm not saying I wasn't, oh. but I don't remember that specific. <laughs> I've been uh, in a lot of just, arguments. Just, <laughs> <laughs> just about how that whole process worked oh. and, and s- specifically sexually selected infanticide. You know, that, that talking about how that specifically, the, so infanticide does occur. It's not always the large males that are doing it for this breeding purpose, and I know you've you've written up uh, a couple like one of the one of the one of your papers was specifically involved uh, infanticide, uh, and it wasn't just male killing cubs, but there were also examples of of females killing cubs and things like that in there, and so I wondered if you would talk a little bit about that how it relates to the misconceptions that are that are put out and i'm sorry you don't remember that argument we had with that national geographic producer because we won it sounds we won tasty. the argument yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we proved her wrong <laughs> but uh because you you'd you'd you have written it up and and have some expertise on the subject 
Well, so first I want to talk about another misconception, and that is the misconception that um, there's bear experts. Because, <laughs> you know, I would never call myself an expert, but I know that I've watched bears for thousands and thousands of hours, but I'm still learning. So I, that's one. Yeah, the you know, that whole infanticide started as, well, let's have more liberal hunting seasons on male bears because they kill cubs and this will be good for the population. And so that was just kind of out there. But it's not because every dead cub was observed being killed by a male. You know, there were situations where somebody would find a cub and then make the decision that, well, based on the tracks around this cub, it was a male, which it may or may not have been. You know, and that's another thing that makes McNeil so incredible is it's it is a living laboratory because a lot of the action actually takes place in front of camp in the lagoon at low tide and you know bears are moving through there whether they're at the falls or up McFick or something you you get to see a lot of that and that's that's true Larry and I call that paper cub mort for short cub mort you know dead cub because it, you know it first started where a yearling cub had been ditched by his mom a a year ahead of time and was really you could see him wandering out in the lagoon and trying to hook up with other families and everybody was shunning him and then he did start trailing around this family group and he ended up getting killed by the female because you know she tried to run him off and she just couldn't and she ended up killing him and that was right in front of camp but of course the group was up at the falls and I was in camp alone just it was not a pretty thing to see. And then another situation where also right in front of us, we saw a bear with two cubs and the bear went off fishing and the cubs were up on a bench kind of right by the trailhead there on the beach. The cubs were vocalizing and another female, you know, came over to him. And I'm, I'd have to look at my own paper to see exactly what happened. But my memory is at least one of them took a swat at the female and she swatted back and killed the cub. And so, you know, it's almost like these are reflexive actions. The the females aren't thinking, well, you know, this will make that other female go into estrus and then she'll have cubs sooner. It it just doesn't really work that way. But I think the the main study, you know, that happened that really helped explain this was um, I'm I hope I don't mix up which guy did this, but I think it was Lance Craighead who looked at brown bears on the North Slope. And so he was actually able to figure out that there wasn't one particular male that was particularly successful, you know, and then it kind of made no sense that males were out killing cubs because even in a litter of cubs, you can have different fathers. They're like dogs after all. So yeah, it's sort of one of those things. And yet it's, again, it's one of those things that's still out there you always hear people talking about it if I hear it in somebody's talk I'll talk to them but you know they don't really have to believe me either but no, it, should. It, it, I mean. it just comes well it, it comes up people are fascinated by this and it, they've latched on to the wrong part of what's part going of on. what's going on yeah and what I always try to tell people it, it's an inc bear interactions are incredibly complex there are any number of reasons why this happened and one of them is bears are hard on bears and if you're the smallest bear you might not survive something that you know a big old bear might survive well you and i were just uh we were on a shoot not too long ago and there was one mama with one single cub and then there was another female 
And that female did not like that cub. She did not like that cub. I got. I was scared a couple times by what I was like. I don't want to see that. But yeah. She chased him off. She would chase him off, at, and it happened daily. For yeah. Every day that we were there, that at some point that mama was just gonna be like, you know what? I'm just tired of you. And then that other mom would get it under control, but that could quickly lead to that cub being gone if it just had the right set of circumstances. Yeah. So. Well, th- so that's a really interesting point, Michael, because I think you know we we perceive something. She she does not like that other bear's cub. We don't know anything about whether they're related. Like right. the two females are related. Right. Maybe that was her cub originally. You know, I mean, we don't <laughs> we don't know enough. So I'll it's very complicated. It's yes. so it's complicated. complicated. So yeah. you can't boil it down to no uh, just one thing. But I, mean. I find myself. I mean, we spent hours filming, right? Yeah. And so you guys spend hours just looking and just being students of nature, geeking, just geeking <laughs> out. And I do the same thing, but oftentimes I'm filming it, right? You just but see it I, through an eyepiece. Yeah, I, I, yeah. <laughs> I try to look through one eye to see it for real, one eye through the eyepiece. But I have these questions all the time, and it's so fascinating. It's like, gosh, I would love to put a satellite tracker in this bear 10 years ago and also have the genetics to know, because these two little bears over here seem to have a, a cool relationship. I was at Geographic one year, and there was two humongous males. And we're, we were photographing one fairly close. I don't even know how far we were. But here comes this other male. And I'm like, oh, you know, you're, the, you're like, oh, this is going to be a fight. Or this is going to be something that's going to be dramatic. Let's shoot it. So we shoot it. And that other bear just comes lumbering over. And they just started playing. <laughs> and it's just not something that you see with big males. But immediately I'm like, are they brothers? Are they just good buddies? You know, beer drinking buddies? <laughs> what is it? Why are they just totally chill? Or it could have been that there's just been so much fish, they're totally satiated, they're just fine, and there's nothing to argue about at the moment. I, You know, those questions are constantly going through my mind, and there's no way to answer it. And I think that's what we're getting to <laughs> right Except here. Except if you spend time at McNeil, because then you can see, oh, RC and Flash, they play all the time. And they're 15, 16, 17 years old, and they're still playing, and they have to be in the river to play because they're so big. But... You know, if you have a long-term record and can see that, um, it's it is pretty cool to watch. And but there's still constant kinds of questions, right? Of because course. you're like, <laughs> let us hope there always will it's be. You, it's the yeah. questions that keep us coming back. Exactly. Yeah. But like with that, it's like, were they cubs together, or did they grow up together? Yeah. Were they on the river? Did they see was one a near side bear and one was a far side bear, and they look across the river at each other and say, "Hey, buddy, what's up?" <laughs> Yeah, because then to do that, you'd have to be like the olden days at, at McNeil and have like an on-the-ground goat rope where you're chasing <laughs> bears around on the ground and darting them and tagging them so that, and then you wouldn't see them at the fall so Derek much, Derek had think. a couple studies about that, or a couple stories about, yeah, about that, but, uh, um, you know, I, I do have to say, you know, we, we did the first one of these with Derek um, Stonarov, so if they if folks haven't listened to that, they should go back right. and listen to that. For sure. And... Um, and Derek's comment about Polly <laughs> was that she is way smarter than I am. Yes. But I'm better at cribbage. <laughs> what do you have to say about that, Polly? 
I'm trying to remember why we started playing cribbage. <laughs> but it might be because when I worked on Round Island at the Walrus Hall out, um, we didn't have a shower set up. We just had a hot tub. And so Gay and I would play cribbage, and whoever won got to have the first hot tub. <laughs> and so I probably told Derek about that. But, you know, he he came up with a rule with whoever wins has to get the other person a really good present. And, you know, I think he beat me most of the time because I don't remember. But But once he actually, I would always say, I wish I had a piece of chocolate layer cake, you know, because we never did. And uh, he came back from visiting his wife in Homer once, and he brought me a piece of layer cake, and I think I must have won that round of cribbage <laughs> games. But so you, you, you delivered when, it, when you needed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he is smarter than I am in so, so many ways. Um, I actually, could I say one other thing? Of course. Um, so one of the amazing things to me about spending time at McNeil was then being in other places and having bear encounters and just not being so panicked about them anymore. So before I went to McNeil, um, I actually got, uh, well, I guess it was a, a grant. I got funded to go out to uh, Unimac Island in the Aleutians and uh, look at the gray whale migration in, you know, into the Bering Sea. And there's bears on that island. And I was out there alone. There was nobody there at the time. And uh, Fish and Wildlife gave me a shotgun because I didn't even have a gun. You know, it was a bare bones operation. And, you know, I told myself, you know, and this was not reality based, trust me. Well, what will I do if I run into a bear? And what I decided was, you know, I would just think along the lines of, oh, my brother, I am not here to hurt you. Just leave me in peace and go. And so that I walked out. Um, I was staying in the old Coast Guard station, you know, which had been abandoned by then. And I walked out on the back deck one day and there was a bear out there and I found out later they used to feed the bears I think and I thought oh I got to get rid of this bear and so I went in and got the shotgun and you know I would never do this now like I would never waste a shot by shooting up in the air but I thought that's you know and so I tried yelling at it and the bear just looked at me and so then I <laughs> fired a shot and just <laughs> looked at me you know and it, I thought oh Okay, I'm done. I mean, what do I do now? And, you know, it's sort of like I had no idea. And then the bear turned and, and wandered off. And I thought, well, that's kind of weird. So, and now what I realize is, oh, that's a food conditioned bear and it's looking for food. But at the time, I didn't know about any of that. But so just last fall, I was up in the park in Denali hiking with a friend and we ended up kind of on a late bus going back to Teklinika where we were camped. And we were seeing a few animals and not very many, but all of a sudden, kind of out of nowhere, this bear came running up onto the road, like from a blind spot downhill of us. So the the driver could have hit him easily, but didn't. Just did a perfect job of sort of twitching the wheels so it didn't hit the bear. And the bear just stopped dead. And it looked at the bus. And it just, I wouldn't say glared, because I think that's kind of anthropomorphizing more than I want to, but it it was not happy. And then it turned and it walked down the road like bears do in Denali. They're so used to, but it was cowboy walking. And I thought if I hadn't spent time looking at bears, I wouldn't even notice that because no one else saw it. And it, it just sort of cowboy walked for, I don't know, about 25 yards. And then it uh, cut off the road and there was this uh, Shepardia 
buffalo berry bush. It was full of ripe berries just off the road, and this bear went, and it got on the uphill side, so we couldn't really see it. All we could see <laughs> was its head and its paws, and it was just sort of raking berries into its mouth, and it kept looking at the bus, because, of course, we were parked there watching us, and it's, you know, I just felt like, I wonder if it's thinking, will they just go away? They almost <laughs> killed me, you know? <laughs> anyway, and I thought, well, aren't I lucky, because here's another behavior I wouldn't think about seeing in Denali, because back momentarily to the um, infanticide, a lot of that happens because there's a lot of bears in an area because of a seasonal food supply. You know, normally, that's not going to happen. So anyway, kind of anomalous <laughs> in a way. Can you guys, we've talked, we've referenced cowboy walking a couple of times on, like, if with Derek. If only we had a video, like, right. we could right. probably but demonstrate. Can, <laughs> <laughs> can you just talk about what that, I mean, because we've talked about it, and I don't think we've ever described it or the reason for it or why they do it. Can you just uh, describe that? Yeah, so so I came up with this term, and I don't think everybody likes it, but it, it, it really... I just noticed it one summer at McNeil when we were looking at a couple of adult males having some kind of a face-off, like down along the side of the river. And I realized they weren't just walking away from each other. One of them was walking really wide-legged in the back and peeing at the same time. And then I also realized he was doing what we, you know, there used to be this dance called the mashed potatoes where you'd spin your feet. And so the bear would actually be doing the mashed potatoes so it was sort of spreading that pea a little farther. I just thought, well, that's really interesting. So it's it's essentially uh, a kind of display, but I don't, it doesn't necessarily mean I'm doing this because I'm the tough top bear. It just means the I think the bear is kind of annoyed at what just happened and it didn't really get resolved. So it's kind of a, a displacement activity which is, you know, just a way of saying, well, the bear is doing this because it would like to do something else, like punch the other guy in the face, but it can't or won't. So it's just doing this instead. Well, it, it's something you see frequently, but I, and I don't think people necessarily pick up on it unless yeah. you point it out. Or, yeah. Right. Um, yeah, it's one of the... It is, and they all have different styles. There was a bear we called uh, Elvis. And <laughs> Elvis. He, had, he had a super fast... <laughs> cowboy walk and it was like he was shaking his hips there's this little booty shake there going on and uh uh well and black bears do it too yeah and right i, I so mean but i assume I mean, but i haven't seen them i've seen black bears do it like during mating season but then you think oh they're just spread, trying to spread the scent so they'll they'll do that walk you know and the, they're almost twisting their yeah their paws but you think it's just for the scent because then they'll walk over trees too and they'll let that little sapling just rub the whole right. side of them. Yeah. And so that scent is just put onto that tree. And I think it's just a male saying, or it's either a male saying, hey, I'm here. Or because you don't see the females do it. Females will do it occasionally, but not all the time. Whereas a male will purposely go right over a sapling if there's one available just to leave the scent. Well, and then also you, you, you see them. I'm thinking of maybe some specific memories here uh, at McNeil. You know, when you're at Upper McVick. And there's that rubbing tree that's down by the creek, and and you know so the the bears will rub on it, and then you know another bear, male bear will walk through and just starts cowboy like he I almost think he can't help himself, like whatever uh, scent markers have been left behind have now triggered something in his brain that he's just he might not even know he's doing it, like it's just like his reaction 
to this is to do this kind of thing. I don't know. Just curious. Those are the questions keep us I coming know, back. I know. More questions. Yeah. Well, so, you know, one thing about the cowboy walk, I, th- I think a lot of people don't think about it in these terms, but um, unlike a lot of other animals, uh, bears are like humans. They're plantigrade, so they walk with their feet flat on the ground, you know, versus something like a dog or a horse that are up on their tiptoes. So what it gives them is um, they're very stable, and it it actually helps them on those really sharp turns. But it, it probably, it might slow them down a little bit, but we all know how fast they can go, so it doesn't, you know, it's probably worth it, and it's probably just because they're so big. But, you know, that also kind of, you know, the whole cowboy walk, it would be different. It wouldn't look as great if they were on their tiptoes, yeah. <laughs> in my opinion. Do more. It would be more of a pirouette. Exactly. Or, uh, something. <laughs> I'm going to pivot again. Here. Pivot. But you've been to so many places, it sounds like. I mean, I'm just, I think we're just barely scratching the surface. But what was it like being on Unimac and watching these gray whales? I'm sure you saw orcas preying on gray whale calves. I'm sure you saw just some amazing things. I didn't see, we didn't see orcas. Um, I first went out there in, in the fall, actually. This is through NOAA, so uh, with a group of people. And it's Fish and Wildlife still had personnel stationed out there. So they had their maintenance guy and his wife, the biologist and his wife and their new baby, a Labrador retriever, and then the, the whale watchers. And so it was actually, I'd been in in Fairbanks before this where the weather's really stable most of the time. And then, you know, to go out to Unimac <laughs> Island, Unimac is an incredible place. It's just, it's wide open tundra and there's all this different wildlife out there. So it was, it was pretty interesting to be there that time of year. I mean, I remember that we would look at the barometer every day and you would just see it dropping. And you think, whoa, here we go. And our observation platform was actually uh, this, I think they were called Unimogs. They're European. They're these big, heavy-duty oh, trucks. drive trucks? Yeah. yeah. And um, we'd sit up in the cab. It was parked kind of right on the cliff and look at the gray whales. And they were leaving the Bering Sea at that time. And, you know, there was this one day the winds were so strong that to get back into the Coast Guard station... I just remember kind of crawling on my hands and knees and <laughs> really? and kind of getting in there. And the maintenance man was standing there and he was making fun of me. Did you have too much to drink? <laughs> <You know? laughs> one thing, you know, we did see orcas, never saw them attack gray whales. But one thing I saw that I thought was extraordinary was that you could, um, sometimes there were sea lions out there because there's also a little uh, sea lion rookery. And the sea lions would sometimes get really excited if a group of gray whales came by and they would go out and kind of bow ride off of them. And I remember seeing through my binoculars this uh, gray whale come out of the water to breathe and there was this sea lion like pinched onto its cheek, (laughs) just having this free ride. And I thought, oh, that must feel so awful. You know, and then the whale went down again. I thought, that's just, I've never seen anything like that. And then there's another question, right? It's like, what in the heck's going <laughs> on here? probably having fun. I mean, those sea lions are just crazy. But in the spring, when I uh, when I went and got this uh, grant, I, I think it was about a year later, I went out there alone. I didn't have money to hire anybody. And Fish and Wildlife did not want me to be out there alone because the personnel was all gone. And so... A really good friend of mine agreed to come out for, I think, three weeks. And so I was out there alone at first, and then he came out for a few weeks. And, I mean, it was it was kind of amazing to be 
out there alone. And, you know, I also realized like the Unimogs weren't there anymore. And so I, I made myself this little box to sit in to do my observations from. But I also had to get out and look around to make sure there wouldn't be a bear right there. <clears throat> and when my friend came out to spend those few weeks, <laughs> we were staying in this abandoned Coast Guard station. And it was really cold. It was spring. So we moved into the captain's quarters because it was an enclosed place and it had a Coleman stove that I bought with my grant money to heat this tiny place with. And one night we woke up because we could hear glass breaking and there was a little bit of a storm happening too. And, you know, the front of this building had this big picture window, like probably five or six big panes looking out at the ocean. And one of them had been broken and so in the morning, um, my friend went to the shop and found a piece of plywood and nailed it up. And he was looking around and he realized a bear had come in the night and probably stood up and just leaned in and broken. And we were just so lucky it didn't come into the station and wander around. <laughs> Cause, yeah, because yeah. those are not habituated bears. No, they're <laughs> not. And so, you know, I, I was kind of worried because then uh, my friend Bill was going to leave and I was going to be out there for three more weeks alone. And so... I th I'd also heard that mothballs keep bears away. And so, you know, th when they left the Coast Guard station, they left a bunch of stuff behind. So one of the things that got left behind were those little uh, toilet bowl disinfectants that kind of hang in the back of the... So um, in front of the Coast Guard station, they had one of those really big painted chains kind of for decoration. And so I hung a bunch of those up. <laughs> <laughs> and I a bear never came around. So I don't know if it worked, but... It must have. I don't know how much time we have left, but we <laughs> yeah. should talk to Polly about Round Island. Well, I was going to uh, be my too. next thing. Okay, yeah. perfect. Oh. Okay. Because, you know, all these amazing places you've worked and gotten to go over the years, and that's one that's on my bucket list. I've always wanted to go to Round Island, and so I wanted to hear amusing anecdotes like? from the walruses. Yeah. It's um, just like at McNeil, you can kind of get a sense of sort of part of an ecosystem because you're in it. Round Island, I think you really get that because you're on this, I think it's less than two miles long. And I heard somebody once describe it as it's like an egg on its end. You know, it just is pointy and that's the top of the island. You could always tell people, well, you're not going to get lost. Just keep walking and you'll end up back here. <laughs> but it is it is an amazing place. And I think uh, when I first, I first applied to work there as somebody's assistant because I, I uh, kind of knew it was time for me to move on from McNeil. Like I really wanted to be a little more in charge. And it was clear Larry wasn't going to leave for a long time, <laughs> which is good. And so I applied to work at Round Island because they were hiring the assistant job. But the person doing the interviewing say, said he didn't really want, he didn't feel good about having two women out there because it was dangerous and there might be problems from locals coming out there because that had happened before. And, and then um, the next year that person left. And so I applied and got the job to be the manager but one of the first things I had to do you know Round Island has this little tiny landing cove and and uh when I started working there they the boat traffic was just getting off the charts busy so there was a really huge herring fishery out of Togiak the village of Togiak and then bottom trawlers you guys know what Surimi is which is pollock which is a bottom fish that's fished and then it's processed and turned into sort of fake shrimp and other things so it's um, a way to have something like shrimp that doesn't cost as much 
And so bottom trawlers were starting to trawl out there, which hadn't happened before. And so it was really loud. It was like living next to a freeway um, because that's before there were any restrictions uh, put on the island. So and actually, Round Island is, so there are three sanctuaries in Alaska that are managed by Alaska Department of Fishing Game. There's McNeil River State Game Sanctuary, which is brown bears. There's Stan Price. Stan Price down in southeast, which is also bears. And there's Round Island. Which is so it's a it's a sanctuary, a McNeil level protection for walruses. So just a little background there. Sorry yeah, thanks, because I you know I get sort of hook well, and we hung we up in the day to day <laughs> operations because I think you know Round Island's open to visitors, but it it never gets the interest because I mean walrus bears. <laughs> you know what is interesting, but walrus are actually incredibly interesting. It's just you don't see them as much because they're in the water so much, or if they're hauled out on the beach, they're mostly just lying on the beach trying to warm up, I think. But uh, my the first summer that I worked out there, one of the first things that I had to do was I went out in May with my boss and with uh, the woman that had been the manager, who was also a friend of mine, and then with my uh, new assistant. And, you know, there was snow everywhere. And uh, I, I kind of had no idea, you know, what to do it was sort of one of those things like oh oh <laughs> what was <laughs> i thinking and then you know everything worked out but you know one of the things that we had to do was there used to be and actually there still is a boat launch system so there's a cable boat cove where the landings are is naturally you know it's just wide enough so you can string a cable across but then you have to get the cable taut enough so you can haul a boat up and down and that's something um jim Taggart and Cindy Zabel had figured out in the early 70s. So it's, and they figured it out because if you just leave a boat on the beach, even if it doesn't get taken by the tide, a walrus is always desiring of flatness. And so a boat is very flat. And so if you have a one ton animal lying on a raft, it explodes <laughs> it. <laughs> and then you don't have a raft anymore. So anyway, they figured out this system to haul the boats off the beach. But um, the cable had broken. And so that was our first chore was to set up this cable. And, you know, I thought, well, this is great. We'll do it while we're here. And so <clears throat> while, you know, my boss and the old manager were there, uh, I thought I would get a lot of help. And they said, oh, you can figure it out. And they laughed. <laughs> 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 and so, you know, I was lucky because I used to rock climb and blah, blah, blah. So we did figure out that system and that was fine but I was never sort of sure of it and I I hadn't you know like I said I'd already rowed boats so I kind of could read the water but now I was in the ocean and I hadn't really used motors very much and so there if you have water coming into the cove you have breaking white caps and you're launching right into them then you have to get your motor started and so I just it seemed to work for me to just use the oars to kind of get away from the rocks and then get the motor going. And so I just, the first group of people that we had, there was, I think there was like six people. It was a boatload of people and they came and it was really, really rough. And I didn't really want to go out to the boat to bring them in because I thought I would lose somebody overboard. And so I went out in the boat and I said, I can't take you guys to shore because I, I don't really feel comfortable doing it. And I just remember one of the women saying if you don't take us to shore we will swim but we're not going back on this boat 
<laughs> because I guess it had been so rough on the way out. You know, people were getting sick and stuff. And so it was great because uh, they broke me in. You know, I took them to shore. I didn't lose anybody. No, nobody really got wet. So it was, so that was like, that was sort of the people dimensions. And then, you know, it's the kind of place people really, there's a trail system. So we expect people to stay on the trails, but the trails are such, so they go over the overlook so you can look at the walruses, but the walruses aren't there anymore. And they seem at this point in time to be using a lot of different uh, of the haulouts in Bristol Bay. No one's really sure why, because the boat traffic, you know, that I think the first or second summer I was there, and I worked there for five summers, but the first or second, I think there were something like 610 boats in the herring fishery. And so there was boat traffic all the time. And even at that time, there was like a two and a half mile limit. So you couldn't get close to the island than that unless you had permission from us on the island. But those trawlers, luckily with the North Pacific Management Fisheries Management Council, we, I think there's a 12 mile limit, but it might just be seasonal now. But anyway, we got the limit for them extended, which is great, but they're not, they're not around quite so much anymore. But we used to get a lot of day traffic from these people coming in for the herring fishery because they just, when the fishery was over, they were so happy. They would, you know, just want to be on solid ground, <laughs> get out, walk around, leave. The Rainbow Warrior came once, which was pretty <laughs> cool, I thought. It's a wonderful place to spend time because if there's walruses in and if the weather cooperates and, and it's calm, there's a lot of acoustical stuff that's happening you know I guess they call it on the island now they're calling it chiming so I don't know what the official term is we always just called it gonging but walruses have these big uh, pharyngeal throat sacs and this is part of their uh, breeding display apparently and so uh, female walruses don't really come to Round Island but they're probably practicing for when they see the girls <laughs> again and so they'll inflate these sacs and and so they can vibrate. And so I've actually seen a group of, I think, about six walruses in a circle where they're vibrating their throat sacs against each other. So it just, it sounds like somebody playing a harp. It is, and usually when you hear it, it's uh, like a Beaufort Zero, which is flat, greasy, calm. So there's no wind, so you can hear. Sound really carries then. So that's pretty neat. And what is that, like a... You got one percent chance of hitting the weather being right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The well. <laughs> yeah, how often was it a Beaufort zero? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, not not very I much. I mean, you would have to spend five years out there to get a couple well, opportunities, right? No, no, but it that doesn't. You know, even if the weather's not perfectly, you'll still see. You won't see something like that because that was that's the only time I ever saw it. But um, you will see like one or two. You know, just. They'll come into a little cove, and it's almost like they will be figuring out if they know anybody on the beach or not. But they'll be in the water for a bit, and so some of them will gong sometimes. And, and that's it's a really rocky island, and so there's, there's places where these little uh, gendarmes, you know, like little thumbs of rock, and they'll just, you know, park themselves next to that and... and do a little sound stuff and then so I don't know if this is real or not because I don't have I didn't collect data in the olden days you know about 
agents of walruses. But I have the sense now when I've gone out there, and I was last out there in 2019, that there's more younger animals in the population than there used to be. So I'm not sure what that's all about, but it's kind of interesting. The other great things about Round Island is the wildflowers are out of this world. And there's there's all these little microclimates on the island. So there's a certain place where you'll get, you know, these certain groups of flowers and then somewhere else it'll be different. And then because it's, you know, it's kind of open to the ocean on one side, you sometimes get errant seabirds or other birds. Like I've seen a meadowlark, a hummingbird. I can't remember which species right now. And a couple of other, you know, like, uh, let's see, a wagtail, yellow wagtail, like a couple of really anomalous birds out there. But but even if you don't see anything anomalous, just the seabird colonies, like the sounds acoustically, it's pretty exquisite, I think. I'm sure. I think when, when, ben, uh, when Ben was out there, wasn't there a Eurasian cuckoo? They got blown into that might that? that sounds right. Your Eurasian yeah. cuckoo turned up on Round Island. Yeah, would it be a? You could probably see a sea eagle too, right? Uh, if they, yeah. well, they blew one up to Denali Highway last year. Right? So. Did they? Right. Yeah, there was a stellar sea eagle up on the Denali Highway. I didn't know that. That's pretty amazing. It's all over Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> we actually one year we saw an Arctic fox showed up because it came out. It came over on the ice, I think. Huh. Oh. Uh, but but there are foxes out there. So red foxes or yeah, the red foxes. So they must have a heyday with all the shorebirds and or all the all the seabirds. Sea they birds? do. They just nail them. But the the ravens apparently um, somebody Steve can't remember his last name right now. Um, he actually did a study on raven predation on kittiwakes out there, and it was really significant. Oh, it's got to be. Oh, Are yeah. those black-legged kittiwakes? Red. Okay. Red-legged. Okay. Blickies. No, they're black. Sorry. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're gonna go as a visitor there. Yeah. How do you get there? Yeah, so it's uh, it's actually similar if you're going to go to McNeil or Round Island. I mean, you, you get the permits and Dan Price um, all through the Fishing Game website oh, online. Okay. So, so you it's can, uh, permit too? Just it's like permit, McNeil. but it's not a lottery because it's not as popular yet. And, and part of that is when I used to work there, there was a working cannery. Um, there's the village of Togiak. And then the Togiak River and Togiak Bay. And then across the bay from the village is Togiak, Togiak Cannery. And so the guy who used to be the winter watchman at the cannery, had a he, he had really figured things out because he actually, he did errands for the cannery. Um, but then he also had a business where he would bring people out in his boat to Round Island. And so when you paid him, it included spending a night at the cannery and then a breakfast at the cannery which was actually great because most people have no idea what a cannery is, anything, you know, is like. And so that's not happening now. And so the guy who's been doing it um, has said several times that he's not going to do it next year, and then he usually does. But this year it sounds like he's more serious about not doing it next year. He just wants to fish. So I don't know. So getting out there is kind of tricky. When, when I worked there... Actually, they uh, they were still allowing planes to land, which is crazy because the one plane we had to land, you know, it couldn't land in Boat Cove because it's so rocky. So it was about half a mile offshore, which means you have to go there in the boat, in the skiff, and pick up people and then be responsible for them. And I just, I still remember like these, 
this man and this woman got out of the float plane and they were not prepared because their sleeping bags, they had those uh, duck bags, you know, those flannel with ducks <laughs> on the linings yeah. and they were coming unrolled and it was just kind of a mess. Um, <laughs> and, and then there were some walrus on shore and, you know, when the plane landed, they left. So, I mean, that's one of the things is because of the Marine Mammal Protection Act, if you disturb walrus, you have to tell on yourself. If you, um, if a plane flies over and you see walrus get disturbed, I mean, there's a system set up now where you log it all down so it all gets reported, which is good, but <laughs> they'll it's disturb themselves sometimes, so it's not <laughs> always your fault. I used to call it the island of guilt, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think um, Acacia Johnson just posted a picture on Instagram the other day from there, and uh, so maybe we could. Check with check her on because I think it was this summer. So really? we, maybe we can get like, how'd you get there? Right. Well, we'll find out from her. Yeah, talk to her. Yeah, talk to her because she'll, she'll. She know just the got skinny. out of McNeil River. I know, and yeah. she was she got one of those. Uh, uh oh, the tide's really a mess. You'll have to stay things. Yeah, they were out there for like nine days. Don't yeah. report this. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah. So maybe I'll, we'll try and run into them and and see uh, yeah. see how their McNeil trip and talk to her about Round Island, too, just to. I have to say Round, Round Island also right now um, has wonderful staff, in my opinion. They're just, they're great. They're really fun. And they're, they're really smart people. So, And also, I mean, y you know, they're, they're doing things differently. When I went out there, I actually, the counts hadn't really been standardized or anything. So I was able to kind of, you know, set up a data sheet. And I mean, this was always sort of a joke. I felt between me and Ben because I used to have a daily log where I'd write every day about what happened, you know, but nobody really does that kind of thing anymore. But apparently Ben read my old logs, which made me like him before I ever met him. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody, and everybody loves Ben. So yeah, no, he's, he's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Round Island for me was always, I've never been there because it was always the place working for fish and game where, and I got to go a lot of cool places with fish and game, but it was, they would always say, Oh, if you do this, you know, we'll we'll send you to Round Island. If you if you do this, we'll we'll send you to Round Island. Never got to go. So I feel I feel like Ed and Joe owe me a trip out there or something. But it, but it is sort of funny because it's not like you can hike and hike and hike. But because of the terrain, it's it's okay. It sort of can wear you out anyway. And I mean, there's so much to see. You know, there's this there's a little there's a sea lion group. And actually, Ed told me there's a sea otter hanging around this year, which is kind of interesting, hmm. sort of different. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's a great I, place. I wanted to talk with because I always enjoyed Polly's Round Island stories. And so I wanted to make sure everybody's hearing about well, Round Island, too. I, yeah, I Not know all about bears. <laughs> I know nothing about it. Other, I, I know the basics. Well, my, you know, I learned a lot. You always learn a lot. Like, I learned so much my first year in Alaska, but I learned a lot my first season on Round Island. Um, and Torter, you know, we didn't, we just had these day visitors, so we never had campers at first. And so towards the end of the herring season, uh, one night, I don't know, it must have been about seven at night, you know, and I was, uh, the other woman that was out there with me, I didn't really know her that well, and the old cabin had this little sleeping loft in the front room and then the back room, which was the radio room, was where my bed was. And so Judy was up in the loft 
and there was a knock at the door. <laughs> and th- I mean, there shouldn't have been anybody on the island. And I was making pizza dough, and and I just remember we were both we'd been talking quietly, and we were both just silent. And I said, "Stay up there," you know. And I, so she just she hears me walk to the door and open it, and then she hears me say, "Well, hi, Scott. What are you doing here?" <laughs> and it, it was one of the Fish and Wildlife Protection guys, and they'd been at the herring fishery and in their ps1 their public safety one boat and they were on their way home and they tried to call us on the radio but we only listened to the radio in the morning was a single sideband yeah okay yeah (laughs) and so we hadn't been responding and they thought well maybe something's wrong you know and so they parked their boat and came to shore so it was anyway it was pretty funny but (laughs) thanks for not hiding Oh. oh man, you got so many cool stories, <laughs> and I don't want to keep you longer. But I could talk to you for another. Well, three so or is four is hours. there anything else, Polly, that, uh, that you want to talk about, or? Well, yeah, because I mean, the problem is to stop me talking because, <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, and and I could even start again on the whole reel, and I probably wouldn't even realize it. But you know, I actually think one of the good things now about bears and people being out is there's so much more information now about what to do if you run into a bear or a bear runs into you. And even though there is, people still do the wrong things. But there's also bear spray, which there didn't used to be. And, um, you know, people say, oh, it doesn't work. Well, I think it's actually a great aid to people that don't want to carry a gun. And I just think if, you know, people keep educating themselves that things might turn out okay. You know, I I always think of this... uh, you know, there's um, a group, the professional group of bear biologists is the international, whatever. The IBA. Yeah, the, the IBA Association for Research and Management yes. of Bears is what it is. And so, you know, they they meet every year and then every three years there's an international meeting. And so um, the year they met in Victoria, B.C., they asked Larry, they actually had three people, uh, Gary Alt, um, to talk about black bears and uh, Steve Amstrup to talk about polar bears and Larry Allmiller to talk about brown bears. And so, and th- for the public talk, because one night of this week-long meeting is always a talk for the public to listen to. And so um, Larry's talk was incredible. He was the last person to go. And I just remember um, first was Gary Alt, who's always been this great speaker, really, really funny. And then Steve Amstrup, who got into more of the data side, and then Larry, and I just remember he wound up his talk about McNeil with, you know, it's if we want to have brown bears or any bears in our world, it's very simple. We have to choose to have them in our world and do what that means. Like he just made it so inspiring and so simple. And I was in the ladies room after the talk and, you know, Victoria, B.C. is where a lot of British people came to live and so there were these two British women in there, little old lady types. And uh I one said to the other, Well what did you think? Did you enjoy it? And and the other woman said, I didn't know what that second one was on about, but that last person was wonderful. <laughs> you know <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so keep it simple and do the right thing. That I really like that yeah, that's 
sums it up. Like, it totally sums it up. If we want to have bears in the world, we need to choose to have bears in the world. And it's not like we don't know how. It's just like climate change and everything else. We we know about this. We just don't. Um, we just don't want to do what needs to be done. You know, I worked for five years as the assistant area biologist in Douglas out of Juneau. And so it was kind of a shock coming there after being at McNeil where you essentially can live your life so you are getting along with bears. And all of a sudden to be in this place where there are so many bears and there, I mean, I have to say people there were pretty tolerant of bears, but they're everywhere. But people, a lot of people don't want to do what they need to do so the bears aren't there you know and I have to say I think we made headway I remember one guy who was feeding pigeons cracked corn in his like over his garage like he had a um like a veranda upstairs and he had a stairway that went up there with a gate and a bear was going up his stairway at night and eating the corn and he was really annoyed and wanted us to do something and and he said, I just remember him saying, well, tell me what to do, but I know what you're going to do. You're going to say, I can't feed the birds anymore, and I don't want to change my lifestyle. And I've always thought of that. Of course, nobody wants to change their lifestyle for a bear, but that's kind of what it might take in some cases. One of my Most buddies cases. is a game warden. Oh, I don't know if I want to say that. One <laughs> of my buddies, uh, he is a game warden. Yeah, that's okay. And he... <laughs> is constantly dealing with bear problems in Colorado. Yeah. And he finally got so sick and tired of it that he made this T-shirt. <laughs> and it has a ranger silhouette, you know, the classic ranger hat, and he has it holding a, a bear cub with a gun to its head. And it's take the bird feeder down or the bear gets it. And it was like... <laughs> <laughs> it's like... Because people just it, won't do it. It's that it's It's shockingly accurate. It, yeah, and it was a big hit with you know his crowd of people that are con just tired of dealing with these people that it's always people that are the problem and they don't want to change ex exactly what you said. They just don't want to change what they do. Well, I've I wish I had made a copy of these two papers that kind of went back to back. But so when when I was uh, working in Douglas, I was doing a lot more technical like technical paper type of reading and. Somebody, I think in Florida or somewhere in southeastern U.S. had done this uh, study with bears in a zoo. And the study was how quickly you can get a bear conditioned to food. And essentially, you know, one bar press, if you put a fish out, a bear will come back to the same spot next day looking for the fish. It just takes one time. But then how long does it take to extinguish that behavior so it isn't looking for the fish anymore? Seven times. So that means... A bear will come back seven times and you you can't, you know, pe people will say, well, I cleaned it up, but the bear is still coming. It's, you try to explain to them it's going to come a few more times. But what I came to just a few years ago was, you know, what we have to do is just get someone if they if they're having a bear problem, except then they wouldn't call fishing game for help. But, you know, just go out to that person and give them a gun and say, shoot the bear. Because we're we're not doing your work for you anymore. <laughs> so it's the same. It's the same thing, and it's you know um, we have a Alaskan rider who sadly died pretty recently. It was just phenomenal because she used to go out with different biologists, and she she went out with um, 
with Vern and with Tom McCarthy when he was the area biologist down in Southeast. And it, her whole story had to do with their jobs as biologists and what they dealt with. And then apparently a, f a family of uh, female and I think four cubs, and they ended up killing all of them because they were such a problem. And I just remember at the end of the article, she said, yeah, this isn't what we signed up to do, but it's what you end up doing. And I, I took that job in Southeast on the condition that I wouldn't have to shoot a bear unless it was to save someone's life because I just kind of knew I'd be worthless. Are you and talking about Sherry? Yeah. So we, we've, we've referenced Sherry before. Uh, she she wrote bears. Dominion of Bears. And so we're, we're, <coughs> we, we, I mean, I, in my mind, that's one of the best uh, bear books from the last couple decades so. when she had she had such a talent as a writer because she could always tell a story and draw you along and then flip it at the very end so you'd get a little bit of a dope slap oh <laughs> yeah i mean she was really good i remember she came um to the 2005 conference in italy and i remember her telling me because she'd already been out to mcneil by then i think and you know her telling me I'm not sure what I'm doing here. And I said, I'm not either. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so we've got, I guess we'll put Dominion of Bears in the show notes again. Again. Well, I got to tell you that I, I didn't know about that book, but we referenced it in the last podcast. And as soon as we got back where I had internet service, I ordered it. Oh, nice. So it's supposed to be here Friday. And what I plan on reading it. I don't know. Well, it's Amazon. I don't know. Oh, Amazon is just ridiculous. It's July, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's so hard to get stuff in Alaska. You you order something in lower 48 and it's there the next day or within two hours and up here. It could be two days. It could be 10 days. You just never know. We'll get there when we get there. Yep. See, I don't think in those terms because I used to work in places like Round Island. Well, yeah. We what? used to have to buy food for four months at a pop. Yeah, you're I can't imagine that. doing that now. I was so organized then. Oh, the, the Costco runs at the beginning of the season. That was before Costco, too. Oh, man. Yeah, I know. It was pretty funny. And I would, um, I'd have to ship everything. And, of course, you know me, I'm always behind. And so I'd be packing it up alone at Fishing Game and then taking it to the post office like at 1 in the morning to send to Dillingham. And then I have to kind of repack it in a fish tote so it could get slung <laughs> on to Round Island. And then we'd have to repack it at Round Island because we'd always kind of organize all the food and then I'd take out all the good stuff and split it in half and then put half of it away in what we called the July box. Because uh. <laughs> all this stuff lived under my bed. Um, you know, the, the buildings at Round Island, you know, got rebuilt by yeah. Brian and Diane and, and they're, they're, those guys are so... I mean, that's something I'll add. So fishing game has often been really fortunate, sometimes unfortunate, but really fortunate usually in their staff. And so they had a couple working on Round Island who were just, you know, Brian grew up up here and he can, he's the quintessential wilderness guy and they can make anything. And so they, they actually rebuilt the staff cabin at Round Island, but they put it in the exact same footprint, which is perfect but it's such a better cabin. And then, you know, when I went out there the first time, the tool shed actually was kind of like an outhouse, but just had all this stuff crammed in it. <laughs> and so th they just, you know, had these phenomenal tool sheds and a gas shed and then um, tool inventories, everything computerized. I mean, really great. Anyway. 
some people are just better at field camp stuff than others. I I, I remember because we'd come in at the end of the season, the McNeil crew and then the Round Island crew, and it always you talk about food, like what kind of food stuff do you? And it was Tom and me, and we're not necessarily chefs. <laughs> and then you you'd start talking to Stephanie Sell. Or so, and she's like, oh, we made yogurt and, you know, all these things. And we're like, well, we had hot dogs. <laughs> stuff. <laughs> you know, it's just so embarrassing to list off what we were eating out there. I know. I was. I made Gay Sheffield her first enchiladas. She didn't, <laughs> she didn't even know. She called them enchildas. She didn't even know what they were. <laughs> you know, the field, field it's people who, man, people can whip up some meals in field camps. And that's, that's. Who you want to work when with. I learned that as a photographer, it changed everything because we would go out and we would eat hot dogs or we'd be like, ah, oh, we can eat sandwiches for three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can for the first week, but after that, you're like, this is ridiculous. So then you, you start learning from other people that, oh, you can make yeah enchiladas or you can. It's not that difficult if you just put a little thought into it before you head out. Well, I don't know. I've had your wraps, Michael. Well, the they wraps, are excellent. Yeah. The sandwich wraps are excellent, <laughs> but they do. But that was only for four days. Yeah. Yeah. So See, we didn't, yeah. <laughs> you go for two or three weeks and it's not going to work. Well, you're so awesome. I Like I said, I could you're very kind. sit and talk to you for hours and hopefully we could do it again. Anytime. And if you're interested and it, this didn't bug you too much or if you'd like to talk, we'd love <laughs> but I'll to talk. Just say the same stuff over again. <laughs> oh, no. I think we can dig a lot more. I think there's, I think there's more in there. I think, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but thank you so much for being on the podcast. Well, thanks for letting me talk about some of my favorite um, beings. Oh, I'm <laughs> yeah. learning more and more from this guy. It's, there's so many cool people out there in so many cool places and so many rich experiences. Yeah, we've all been really, really lucky, I think, to be alive at this particular time and, you know, pandemic notwithstanding. I mean, it's it's especially interesting for me now that I'm retired and I know that more than half of my life is over just to sort of see where we're heading. You know, then I see, you know, I, I've been telling my friends, well, I chose to not have a child. I feel like I need carbon credits for that. <laughs> but, you know, I, I look at some of these uh, younger people coming up, and they're so impressive to me. They've got energy, and they can get right to the heart of the matter. It's, it's really interesting to me. And my, my, my niece is a marine ecologist who, um, who works in the, well, I guess we'd call them the Queen Charlotte Islands off of BC. And, you know, she's, it's so interesting to talk to her to see what they're doing for science these days because I am pretty disconnected from that sort of stuff. It's really eye-opening. It's a good use of technology. I think you hit the nail on the head because I do think that this is a pretty good time to be alive. Yeah. I always say, man, I wish it was 100 years ago. But then I'll follow that up with, with my iPhone. <laughs> but you won't have anybody to text oh no I'm just for taking pictures and taking notes and that kind of stuff it's like my iPhone would be really cool but everything else but then you come back to now and it's you, I mean it's just like the habituation of bears I mean that's only I had no idea until we talked to Derek that was not a thing always you know it's and nobody knew that that could happen 
that you could go to a place and coexist and everything's pretty much good. Well, and it's amazing because people still, some of them, don't understand the difference between a conditioned bear and a habituated bear. And it's it's everything. It, you know, it's it's such a big thing. So That's so a I whole other podcast. Yeah, actually... We could I think that would be a good one. Should we just cut this and do another podcast right now? <laughs> Except I have to share with you my, my new favorite T-shirt that I saw some guy wearing, and it's probably old to you. Solar, not just for hippies anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so I really like that. <laughs> no, I think let's schedule that for when you come back. Okay. From the yeah, field. we'll do a... If you're up for it, because that would be a good conversation. I'm up I'm up for anything, yeah. Okay. Well, and hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll bring more of these... Uh, Bio biologists and and just kind of highlighting the diversity of amazing people that uh, that we know. Okay, so here's here's how you could start it: is you just talk, you know, make a list of ten people. I don't have to be on it; I won't be too miffed. But but just <laughs> have them in their own words define habituation, and and don't let Hectel perfect it and go back and <laughs> hum and ha. Just make them spit it out, and then just run them after one after another if they make sense yeah. yes that would be very interesting yeah, reduction I think so too. in intensity or duration of a response to a stimulus whoa is that too nerdy it's from the dictionary no <laughs> i think that's actually great as one of the definitions because then i would probably just say off the top of my head something like I'd, uh, uh. <laughs> Habituation is when you get used to a stimulus because it's happening all the time, so you don't really react to it anymore. It's not a big thing. And our last three episodes, we've just been throwing habituation around like everybody knows what it is, so we will need to yes follow up on that. Yeah, because I, I don't want them to think it's like, oh, they're so habituated, they're like a dog. Because they're yes. not. They're allowed to be wild. There's a spectrum of habituation. Right. I mean, it's, yeah. Hmm. I think that's a really um, good point because <laughs> remember, you know, Craig Medrid, yeah. you know, the sports writer who's actually a really good guy. But, you know, he he once wrote about McNeil and he said something about the starry eyed people of McNeil River would have it otherwise, except, you know, bears are really dangerous. And, you know, I think you're right. Like habituation, if I heard that and didn't know what it meant and I'm not an idiot, you know, I would think, oh, that bear that bear has a habit like the bear is responding to something instead of it being the opposite so that's that's really interesting but uh, that is the most misused yeah. term in uh, and, i mean for bears and i assume that's for most wildlife i mean it's um yeah it's more natural yeah Yeah. <laughs> well, they're, I mean, they're wild. And I, I really do think like places like McNeil, where you do have access to habituated bears, like you, you get to see things that like you wouldn't see if. You know, every so often you come across, and it's not just McNeil, anywhere, Katmai, anywhere, you come across a non-habituated bear that just takes off, just 
takes off running. You never see it stop running. And I always feel bad. I'm like, oh, man, sorry, buddy. I didn't mean to scare you. And then I think, you know, congratulations on your self-preservation instinct, buddy. <laughs> like, that's, yeah. Keep, sorry about that, but you're going to be, you are going to be just fine. Yeah. <laughs> Go make little bears. <laughs> yeah, I think that's about right. Well, yeah, so we do have another podcast out. It just rolls right into it, so... Yeah, that's good. Well, thank you, Polly. You're one of my favorite people in the whole wide world, so uh, thank you for answering my phone call <laughs> to, to come be on this with us. Sing along to the radio. Mm-mm. We're going to make it someday. Nothing's going to get in our way. We will be the biggest band in town.